Hello, welcome back. If you're a regular listener, you'll notice that you haven't heard from us in a while, as we missed last month's episode. And we're sorry about that. A couple of things are changing in both Taryn and my life, for the better, don't worry, but it's been a really busy time, so sorry for the missed episode. Consider the period between the last episode and this one a mid-season break, and this an announcement that we're coming back and getting back on schedule. Just to keep you in the loop regarding what that schedule is, we'll still be coming to you monthly, but now in the first week of the month rather than the last, and on the first Monday specifically. I know this isn't actually a Monday, but the month just began, and we didn't want to wait till next week to get back onto things. So enjoy, we're a bit early this time. The next episode will be the first Monday of October, but just stay subscribed for the updates. One more thing before we get to the episode, we are looking to expand the show, and we've got a little bit of paid producing work up for grabs. So if that interests you at all and you've got any relevant experience, please get in touch with me at ben at curionetwork.com with a CV. Okay, I won't delay the show any longer. Enjoy the episode. Ahoy, mateys, and welcome to the Uncertainty Ooh. Principle. Ahoy! <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying something a little different here uh, for reasons that will hopefully become clear. Uh, I am, as always, uh, your physicist co-host, Dr. Ben McAllister. And I am your marine biologist co-host, Taryn... Oh, Dr. Taryn Lobenstein. Uh, very, very good. You've got to get that prenomial in there. And this is, of course, a uh, science comedy podcast brought to you by the Curio Network. We look at fascinating stories connected to science, technology, And we also use uh, things like history, politics, and culture as a lens to explore the science. We look at the way they interact with each other rather than just telling you boring science stuff. So uh, the way this show works, and this happens to be your first episode, is that each month, one of us researches a topic in uh, exhaustive, frankly, astonishing detail. (laughs) Just, you know, they really knuckle down, spend a month, a whole month full time distilling everything about that field into some notes. And the other person, which in this episode is me, does exactly zero research on the topic in question, (laughs) and then they just kind of act like a sounding board. They uh, go along with you on your journey of discovery and uh, learn things at the same pace as you and hopefully facilitate things a little bit. Yeah, that's pretty much the the whole sum of it. And yes, I would like to reiterate that I have spent Literally every waking moment researching yes. this episode for the last. That's month, fucking just to right. Be clear. That's right. It's going to be extremely. <laughs> I don't have a job. I no. do not. I do not do anything else with my time. This is my only Taren wakes activity. Up, crack of dawn. Starts researching for the uncertainty principle. Goes to sleep. Crack of midnight. Sleeps five hours. One month later, we sit down for forty-five minutes and record. <laughs> The distilled information that she has acquired over the course of that month. It's It's like doing um, a mini PhD every month. It's an extraordinary undertaking. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, if you've listened before, you you will no doubt know that we don't just do that part of the show. Sometimes we have special guests to tell us about interesting science not connected to the show. Sometimes we have our producer Nula on and we play fun little games, which we're going to have for you in the midpoint of this very episode. But in the meantime, I think we should jump into this week's episode, which... uh, well, hopefully we'll be thematically connected to the fun, flirty introduction I used for the show this month. <laughs> it was both fun and flirty, Ben. And yes, it is related. Today's topic is going to be all about animal navigation. So, yeah, so 
kind of related, right? The, 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 to take you behind the scenes there, uh, when Tara and I were talking this week about what the show is going to be this month, she was like, navigation. And I was like, cool, I'm going to do so many great pirate bits and bits about oh, no. like mariners and sailing. And then uh, we get in here, and I'm just about to hit start. Just literally just about to hit go on the recording. And Tara's just like, well, by the way, I'm animal, animal navigation. <laughs> And I was like, well, okay, I'll just take off this pirate hat and throw throw away my notebook of... Because, uh, you know, well, Taryn spent a month researching navigation. I spent a month writing pirate jokes. <laughs> so we're not going to have any of that, unfortunately. Oh, God. Well, listen, listen. I don't want you to throw the notebook away because what happened... What had happened was that I was doing my little research every moment for the last month. And I pretty quickly realized that, like, I could not fit both human navigation and animal navigation into one episode, which was the original plan. I was like, oh, so we'll talk about sextants, and that'll be sexy and fun, and then we'll talk about animal navigation. But turns out, all animal navigation is a pretty complex topic to try and tackle in half an hour. Right, all right. Well, we've spent far too long doing the podcast, The Uncertainty Principle, the podcast about the podcast, The Uncertainty Principle. So right. uh, enough explaining. Tell them what you're going to tell them. We've already done that. We're talking about animal navigation. I'm fucking psyched to learn about this because I know absolutely nothing about it uh, other than that I know well, some animals can do cool cool navigation things. So please, tell yeah. me. Yeah. And would you say, Ben, that you're somebody who has like a good sense of direction? Like, are you pretty good at like, navigating your way around because i'm pretty hopeless at it so i i'm just curious like would you describe yourself as somebody who kind of knows how to get around well taryn you've traveled around with me a couple of times I so <laughs> i'll let i'll let i'll let you be the judge of that so you're very good i will say in the perth surrounds you know what you're doing uh, but but you never come to my neck of the woods and navigated, so I'm not sure how your general direction sense is. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I think it's not bad, um, to be honest, although I, I only know that in comparison to people who have, like, awful senses of direction. I'm going to say I have, like, a pretty pretty standard sense of direction. That's good. I have a very bad one. So this has been a really fun episode as well to, to, na- to, to navigate, if you will, just to uh, learn about all the different ways that I can improve my own navigation. Cause, oh, boy, can you actually do that? Can you, like, improve well, it? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's not something that we're going to super delve into, but I do really want to, in the future, do an episode on human navigation, and then we can talk about that then. And you can use all your pirate jokes, so don't throw away that notebook, all right? Okay, great. I already burned it, but go on. (laughs) So let's say I just dropped you in the middle of the woods, and you're like Bear Grylls style trying to like figure out how to get back. Like, what what skills are you going to use? What senses are you going to use? Do you mean me specifically or a person yeah, you. who knew? Okay, what would I do? Um, yeah, like an average, I, we're talking about like an average physicist human yeah, here. Right, cool. Above yeah, average, an above average physicist human. Taryn, that's very kind of you. I don't know, Taryn, you tell me, what would I do? Well, I mean, if I was you, I'd probably start by looking around, trying to get my bearings, figure out where I am. You're trying to look for landmarks that you might you know, recognize. Can you see a mountain peak in the distance? Can you hear trickling water nearby and think, oh, that's a water source? You know, you're using a couple of your different senses to try and figure out where you are and then try and figure out where you need to be, which is presumably not in the middle of the woods. Those are some human navigational or rather orientational senses. So uh, something I'd like to clarify at the beginning of today's uh, discussion is that there's a difference between navigation and orientation, which I did not know before I started researching this. 
So orientation, that's figuring out like, where am I in this moment? Like I have just woken up and I'm in the middle of the woods. Where the fuck am I? Then navigation is figuring out how to get from where you are to where you want to be. So we're going to be yeah, talking okay. about both orientation and navigation today. You know, I feel like I've never thought about that, but like that makes complete sense with my understanding of what those words mean, like in a non-formal definition. So yeah. All right. So, so I want to talk through some of the senses that we share with many animals before we get into some of the wilder stuff, like, you know, using magnetic fields and such. So we already talked about using landmarks that's called piloting in the you know, literature, academic literature on this topic. And, you know, Wait, it's basically just... They call it piloting? Just like looking for landmarks? Well, that's crazy. remembering them, like learning them, remembering them, using landmarks, that's called piloting. Yeah. I, I would think piloting means like driving something around, but okay. Listen, something you're going to learn quickly, jargon does not make any sense to somebody yep, outside that academic field. That's true. That's true. Okay. So that's something that... I know I do. So something I've learned to do since I've moved to Canberra is we have this big tower on top of a mountain um, that you can see from pretty much anywhere in town. So if I get lost and my phone is not connected to the GPS, then I can figure out what direction I'm going by looking for that tower. So that's an example of piloting. Um, It's likely that many animals also can navigate this way. And it's particularly beneficial over shorter distances where you might be able to remember like that's the tower and then next is the big lake. Uh, It can be hard if you're talking about, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles, but very useful on smaller scales. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd never thought about the fact that like animals would totally interact with like human made structures in their like local sense of direction. But of course they would. Like if it's like a dog that lives in an urban environment, it's not going to be looking for like trees and shit. It's going to be like, that's the big red building and that's the big green building. And it's not going to call them buildings. But yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it can be both human made and natural uh, landmarks. It's just something that's, you know, noticeable. And in the case of, you know, the Canberra one, like, wow, that tower is weird. Like, I'm sure going to remember that more than like that 1200th tree that I saw today. All right. So there's a cool story that I read about, about a scientist who uh, was sort of researching um, how animals navigate. And uh, he had trained these rats to run through a maze. And he got them pretty well trained up, and they seemed to really know the route that he had given them. He was pretty proud of himself. But then when he moved the maze, he moved it to the other side of his lab, probably just to, I don't know, (laughs) make more space for something else. And he found that when he moved the maze itself, uh, the rats could no longer make their way through the maze that they had learned so perfectly. Yeah, and he was like, what the hell? Like, I thought these guys knew what was up. And it turned out that they did, but how they had been navigating the maze is that they were using landmarks on the ceiling in order to navigate. Yeah, or just like other big stuff in his lab. That's very interesting. So they didn't like think to just look at the maze itself. Wow. Oh, that's pretty pretty neat in terms of, wow. So rats, rats pilot more than they remember directions. It seems like. Well, yeah, it kind of refuted this theory at the time that they thought, which is that they thought that the rats were memorizing a certain sequence of steps. Like, I go forward yep. three steps, and then I go left eight, and then I go forward five. They thought that's what was yeah. happening, but they were piloting the whole time. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, okay, cool. But, <laughs> because animals are super diverse in the ways that they navigate the world, it turns out that there are some animals who actually do navigate in that sort of three steps forward way. Uh, and this this one's 
Okay, it's pretty cool, but it's also a little fucked up. So I will just <laughs> start with that warning. So proceed. Uh, there are these desert ants um, that exist. And some researchers were doing studies on them to study how an ant might navigate compared to, say, something bigger like a rat. Um, and so they had a hypothesis that they were actually counting their steps. So in order to test this hypothesis, they figured that they would uh, separate the ants from their nest, you know, a place that they want to be in that they know where it is, their nest. And then they would modify the length of the legs of these ants <laughs> and see... Wait a yeah. minute. You can't uh-huh. just gloss over that one. What the yeah. fuck? Modify the length <laughs> of the legs. That is some scientist-ass bullshit. All right, go on. Listen, biologists, they have a weird time. They have a weird time in their jobs. So the way they did this was they put some of the ants on tiny, tiny little stilts. And then they release them, and okay. they would let them. I mean, that's way navigate. better than yeah. the alternative way of modifying. Well, I'm not legs. done. Listen, I'm not done with the okay. story. <laughs> so they put some on tilt stilts, and they let them navigate back to the nest. And they found that the ants overshot the nest by exactly the amount you would predict by the increase oh, in length wow. they had gotten from these stilts. Yeah, and this. Okay, this is where I take issue. That is enough proof. That is enough proof of this theory. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I don't but know then you know what they did. <laughs> yeah! Wow! They cut legs off ants. They like, cut, cut them the in legs holes? off the ants. They, they gave oh. them little stumps. That's the term they used was stumps. Oh my stumps god! And that's that's tr- it's stumps dark, and man. Stilts. That's dreadful. Why would they <sighs> do such a thing to those ants? And they'd well, already they were trying to prove the theory. I mean, also, I agree. I think they already proved the theory. Hats, hats <laughs> off to the researcher who sat down and strapped stilts <laughs> to like a bajillion ant legs. Holy fuck! Like, how would you even do something like that? You know, I actually did look into the methods, and it was like it wasn't stilts like what you're thinking of, like clowns. Like, I think they were using like very, very fine. Like, I don't even know if it was like paintbrush. You know little fibers or like like eyelashes like it was these so little delicate things that they would just glue to their legs and they also didn't yeah, say the, what they did the with them after that, <laughs> that's the part that takes forever is the gluing <laughs> you, like imagine that Terry. if i handed you like do you have any idea if i if i pick up like a handful of ants how many legs there are in that fucking handful and i'm like taryn your job today is to glue little feet to all of these legs <laughs> that's like that's insane the things people do for insane. science eh? listen when you're a field assistant for a biologist you're gonna do some weird shit and we're gonna talk about some other okay. weird shit but i maintain that this is the most fucked up of them so we got it out of the yeah, way early. cool all right great yeah. so ants so anyway, count their steps th- i mean they good, count good, their good steps <laughs> Okay. Whether but, they know so, that's what they're doing or not, that's what they're doing, I guess. Like, their internal processing yes. is, like, doing something like that. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, even just with ants, but I wanted to do some... I wanted to do breadth more than depth today, so... Um, okay. So, something that we actually talked about in a recent live episode is... Well, we were talking about sea turtles, and they use a type of navigation that's actually a lot simpler than the ones we've covered. So, like, seeing landmarks, that's a bit more cognitive processing. Um, but do you remember 
the thing about sea turtles, specifically when they're babies and how they find their way to the ocean, do you remember that by any chance? Yeah, yeah, they they look for the like the brightest thing, which I guess is the ocean at night because it's reflecting starlight and the moon, and you Bingo! can confuse them by having lights. Yeah, fuck yes. yeah! Go back and listen to the sea turtle episode to hear that thing I just said, <laughs> but longer. <laughs> So yeah, so that's another more simple way that uh, animals might just be innately attracted to a light. And as you said, um, how they might be in trouble if the brightest light does not happen to be the moon on the day that they hatch, but some guy's, you know, motion sensor detector that goes off and leads them astray. Some guy's brand new Toyota Hilux with halogen lamps (laughs) that he's driving up and down the beach. This podcast brought to you by Toyota. (laughs) Can you imagine... Can you imagine if we were able to get a sponsorship from someone as, you know, like... Large as Toyota? A company yeah. as Toyota. Yeah, and, and that was how we dropped it in, was you were like, <laughs> yeah, you know, how bad it would be for the turtles if instead of the moon reflecting off the ocean, it was a brand new, fully loaded Toyota Hilux. <laughs> 10,000 watt halogen lamps. Light up the beach at night. Confuse those baby turtles. <laughs> they did not... <laughs> stipulate their contract well enough and we found a loophole (laughs) okay so there's being attracted to two different lights and we're going to talk about that a bit more later um but another way that i found that was actually pretty human is you know the story of hansel and gretel the like classic breadcrumbs baby breadcrumbs right they get lost in the woods and they leave a trail of breadcrumbs to yeah. find their way home. So we have always thought that that was a pretty distinctly like human thing to do. But it turns out there's evidence that there is an animal called a wood mouse that actually does this. It's the first observation of a non-human animal uh, using movable landmarks. So not oh, just saying, oh, there's a barn there, but I'm going to take my landmarks with me. So in this case, they're these little mice, and they use leaves and twigs as landmarks that they move around, and they use it to help them navigate their surroundings and not get lost while they're foraging for food or other things. And That's it was pretty theorized neat, that... Like, yeah. Yeah, so, like, some, some ants use, like, pheromone trails and shit, right? Like, I guess we'll maybe get onto that a bit later, but, like, some of them just fucking make their own little trails... That's that that looked like that's really smart, but also it seems kind of busted. Like it seems like that was a thing that like humans probably started doing after we already had society, and not like a thing that was baked into our DNA. But like these ants are just like, oh, I'll just make a little pile of dirt. Oh no, it's not ants. It's mice. Mice. This okay. The wood, yeah. Either the wood way. mouse. Yeah. No, it's really cool. And yeah, as you kind of alluded to, um, there's other mice and I guess ants and lots of other animals who use scent marks and scent trails to sort of keep track of where they've been rather than like visual ones. Um, But it's been theorized that the wood mouse, uh, you know, has really big eyes compared to other mice of its, you know, similar species. And so that's probably why they use these visual cues rather than relying on scent-based cues. So that's a pretty interesting uh, observation of these little mice, and I just love to think of them, like, carrying around their favorite little leaves so that they can be like, oh, I don't want to get lost. Like, just gonna yeah, do they reuse the same, the same ones? Like, will they, like, go Ooh. back and pick them all up later? And... I mean, they definitely do move them around. So, like, let's say they want to go check out field A, they'll bring their leaves and their twigs with them, and then if they decide that the left half of field A is not good, then they'll go and move those twigs over to the right half of the field. So they're moving them around. They're not just saying, oh, this rock sits here forever. They, they bring it around with them. So cool. Yeah, right. Those are all of the 
the visual ones that are pretty familiar to humans and something that we could kind of relate to. Um, there's also one other sense that I wanted to touch on that, I mean, we don't use as much, but we're like familiar with it, and that's smell. So when you're talking about smell, it turns out that fish are actually really good at what? using their sense of smell. Yeah, okay, that's yeah, bizarre. I mean, that's not... Yeah, cool. I mean, I believe you, but I, I can't even fathom <laughs> the concept of fish having smell. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, part of my PhD research was on this, actually. And it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, you know, compared to our wood mice example, where they have really big eyes, so they use visual cues rather than sense. Well, if you're a fish, if you've ever gone, like, diving or snorkeling, you realize that the deeper you go, like, light just goes away really quickly. Like, it's really dark and dim down there. And so you need to rely on other senses more than your sight. And for a lot of fish, that means that their sense of smell is really important to to them and figuring out where they are and where they want to be. So there's a cool example of salmon. And they're pretty famous when we're thinking about, you know, animals that travel long distances. Yeah. Navig- yes, they're the most famous of the navigatory fish. Um, they take these, you know, epic journeys where they start off in this little river or stream, then they migrate hundreds of miles out into the ocean, and then years later they can find their way back to the same stream where they were born. Um, and so scientists figured out that the salmon were using their sense of smell to find those home streams. It's that particular blend of you know, all of the different molecules that would be in that particular stream, you know, is it uh, the local, like, rocks, the different types of soil, the vegetation, are there other fish there, you know, what makes that scent so special, they're able to find their way back there. And the way that they figured this out... Did they do it in a fucked up way? Is that how they figured it out? Did they do it by disrupting (laughs) the scent trails and seeing that the salmon got lost? (laughs) I mean, pretty much, yeah. so this is back in the 50s when apparently there were less rules and so what they did was they captured some salmon and they just like plugged their noses okay that's way less bad no it's i I I said at the beginning the ant one was the most fucked what were you thinking I, I thought that they were just going to, like, dump a bunch of chemicals in the river to mask the scent trails, and then the salmon oh. could never find their way home. Oh, that would be mean. That's probably what but I also... would have done if I was a 1950s salmon smell researcher. But, uh, you know, I guess that's why I'm well, not a 1950s them, salmon smell not. researcher. <laughs> but, I mean, listen, it wasn't great. This wasn't all great for the salmon. It wasn't that bad. But So they, they collected a bunch of salmon plugged their noses so they could no longer smell, and then they put them downstream from where their natal stream was the stream was where they were born so they knew where the salmon were supposed to go then there were ones that had unplugged noses they made it right back to the the correct area good for them they're going to be able to spawn again this year for the ones with plugged noses there was a fork in the uh, river and they basically just had a 50 50 split at that fork so if their nose was plugged they basically were just guessing and half of them made it back and then the other half I assume we're lost, never recovered. <laughs> they don't really say. They never say what happens to the other like animals in these experiments. Like what happens? Okay, to the well that ants? seems like a that seems like a failure in the methodology because how did they know that they did a fifty fifty if they didn't track where that other fifty percent of the fish went? Maybe they just died or something on the way back. Oh, that's true. That's true. I hope that that's the case, <laughs> and that they didn't just let them go. It was the fifties. It was a different time, but. 
Anyway, that's a way that they figured out that scent was so important to these salmon. Um, yeah. And I also think it's really nice. Like, I don't know about you, but like, do you ever just come home, like your parents' home, and it just smells like, it smells like home, and you don't know why, it just smells like home. Well, that's what the salmon are doing. They're just smelling home. N- none of my parents live in any places I lived as a child, so no. <laughs> but, yeah. um, okay. you know... <laughs> That's maybe, yeah, that's, a, I, I believe that that's a thing that humans experience. I've experienced it before. <laughs> and anyway, so does salmon. And, and apparently that's very important to how they, they find their way home so that they can spawn and have babies and then go back into the ocean and do it all over again. So those are some of the forms of navigation that are pretty familiar to us as humans. But to be honest, it's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of more interesting ways than animals can actually navigate the world around them. Um, but before we get into that, I think maybe now is time to, to play a really fun game. I don't know. What do you think? Yay! I love a fun game! Yay! Let's do it! All right. Hello. So here we are in the mid part of the show, where once again, we're here with our producer, Nula. Say hello. 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 Lovely to be back. Thanks for having me. That's great. And last time you will have heard Nula both, you will have heard Nula both tell us about her sperm research and also play a fun game with us. Well, we, we, we successfully figured out who Charles Darwin was, I believe. Yes. In a game of celebrity heads. That was fun. Celebrity heads. Whereas here, we're going to play a different fun game, I understand, uh, Nula has just told me. Nula, why don't you tell us what the fun trivia game is for this episode? Yes, sure. So we're just going to play a game that we've previously played at uh, one of our live shows. Oh, nice. Um, called Science Fact or Fiction. Or as oh. I called it, Science Fiction or Science Faction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you love I've, that name. I decided to not reuse that name, but yeah, you can call it that, I guess. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to keep insisting it's called that, <laughs> and you guys can do with that what you will. How does this game work, Nola? Uh, so pretty much it's just going to be two truths and a lie. Okay. It's just I have some sciencey facts that I'm going to read out, and um, and then, yeah, you guys guess or know which one is the lie? Which What science fact have I just straight made up? Okay, and are Taryn and I playing against each other in this particular game? See, I think that would be more fun. Yeah. I think that would be more enjoyable. I agree. I think so too. Let's, <laughs> okay. let's do it. Okay. I'm very excited. Wait, Give and us, also, uh, it's facts. two truths and a lie, because I think last time we actually lost a yep. live yep, round we because we up. thought it was two <laughs> lies and a truth. Yeah, yeah, no, so you're trying to find truths. the lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so are we ready to go? Yes, I'm absolutely yes. ready to go. Give me science fiction, fiction and faction number one. Okay, well, to start off with, since I am a sperm scientist, I Good. thought we'd yes. start off with some sperm facts. Cool. Okay, Ooh. so A, it takes about three months for uh, testes to make sperm. Okay. Hmm. Two, semen is a good source of protein and other vitamins containing okay. about 10 calories. About 10 calories. Okay. <laughs> and C, sperm can survive for a week in a woman's body. Okay. Which God. one is the lie? Oh, yeah. no. They're all horrifying. <laughs> wow. I hope they're all lies. I don't like knowing um, these facts also, at all. <laughs> yeah. I also, I felt like when you said sperm facts, it kind of sounded like you were saying sperm facts, like FAQs, like that website Game Facts that like people, uh, sorry, sorry, that was just a little esoteric uh, game and nerd reference. Yeah, uh, it went over my head. I'm sorry. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> where you can look up some FAQs about sperm. Uh, okay, so are we just going to say them like on the count of three? So well, wait, be, like, sorry. Remind me what they were. A, yeah, yeah. Was, a was what? So the first one is it takes about three months for... Three months, um, right? Men's, 
a male's testes to produce sperm. Um, semen is a good source of protein. That yeah. one seems pretty nebulously defined. I mean, what qualifies as a good source of protein? Like, is there a Who technical definition judge? there? Okay. Um, okay, and then the third one was... A nutritionally uh, significant source of protein. Uh, okay, and the third I'm gonna one... I'm going to turn it. And the th- third one is um, sperm can survive for a week in a woman's body. Okay. okay. Are you ready to go on this one, Taryn? I feel like I'm yes, ready to go. Yes, I'm ready to go. All right, so okay. I'm going to count down. Nula, you I'm going to count down. I'm going to count down. Okay, okay. Say your answer on three, two, one. B. A. Ooh. Oh, shit. Are either of us Ooh. correct, Nula? Yes, Ben, you have yes, it. Yes, you have it. Fuck yeah. So the reason I discovered this was Googling sperm Wait a sec. facts. It's and two it truths up- and a lie. So that was the lie, right? The lie Correct. is semen the, the, is not a good source of protein. Yeah. Um, what? It, I feel it like came up as a suggested Google search was um, <laughs> how many calories is in semen. Yeah. Um, uh. And so I, I looked into it. And whilst there is protein and other vitamins in semen. Isn't it mostly sugar? There is there is a bit of sugar in the plasma, yeah. um, but to have for it to be like nutritionally significant, you would have mm. to ingest more than a hundred ejaculates a day. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> They've done the maths. Oh, that's a that's a busy day. Oh no! That is a busy day right there. <laughs> 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 it's me. Oh god. Oh. Okay. That is an eight-hour workday of drinking a shot every like five minutes. Yeah, yeah, and you'd have to be getting that from multiple sources because I, that's no! physically impossible. Yeah, well, it takes for three months. It to... takes three months for a man to produce sperm. So, wow. Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay. yeah. And even in my even in my job, I do not see that many ejaculates a day. I see a few, but not quite that. Okay. Okay, wow. okay, moving on. Oh, so okay. Slightly less racy questions. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so again, which one is the lie? So we have A, all planets spin anti-clockwise in our solar system. Okay. Um, B, rats laugh when tickled. <laughs> oh, I hate the concept of a rat laugh. Oh, the fact scientists much. investigated yeah. that. Um, oh, C, there are more trees on Earth than stars in our galaxy. Okay, Aww. so do we have it? Do we have it? Are we ready? How for a are we defining there? a tree? It's two a tree. And a it's, a, it's a thing. It's a so thing. It's... By like you know, biologists have determined what okay. a tree is. Okay, but, it's but a... does it include like shrubs? It's got to be like a. I actually looked this up. So tree has like it needs to produce like woody material. That's what separates so like a, it from other parts. Like a rosemary parts. bush would be considered a tree. Because it has yes. kind of a woody stalk. Yes, I, w- okay. I believe so. All right. I believe so. Okay. I just, yeah. Okay. All right, cool. I'm ready. All right. Okay, okay yeah, you ready? I'm also ready. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Three, two, one. A. C. Fuck. Ben's going to get this one. There was a lot of salt of astro <laughs> questions. It's A. Yeah! To be fair, you are the physicist here. Although, to be fair, you're the biologist. (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah, well, there's a lot of stars in the galaxy. There's so many. Yeah, no, no. This really shocked me. There are more than three trillion trees on Earth. Holy Uh, God. uh, And and all planets spin anti-clockwise, apart from Venus. Venus spins clockwise. So. Love that. Yeah. See, I didn't know that specifically. I just thought that there was no good reason that they would all spin anti-clockwise. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed that they would. So and then the tree thing, I was day. like, there's no way. Because there's, there's yeah. no well, way that there's that Yeah, well, to be fair, it was, it was 
it was stars in our galaxy, not stars in our universe. Because, oh. like, the galaxy is what? Like, a hundred million stars or something like okay. that? Okay. You know what? And, that's like, fair. I didn't think of that. There's more people than there are stars in the <laughs> galaxy. But it's either... Okay. This, this is where my, my mind was going. It's either a hundred million or a hundred billion as an order of magnitude. Mm. I couldn't remember which one it was, but I figured... In either of those, especially if we were including like rosemary bushes, it was probably. What do you have against rosemary bushes? No, no, that you I just don't think they're tricky. I, I, I was just thinking like there, there are going to be so many of those because, like, say there's like you know order of ten billion people. If it is a hundred billion stars, you just need ten trees per person, and I think they're probably oh, if we're including yeah. any kind of woody bush. That was some quick maths that you yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> really, really. That's how I live live my life, Dylan. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, rats do laugh when tickled. Oh, I, I think that. that's. The I take- knew that one the biologist knew that one at least (laughs) um i mean hey i think i've taken this one to 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 without even going to the third one but just Uh, to give karen a chance to to regain some pride or just uh, yeah i don't know question three yeah we're gonna go over three three? let's try that (laughs) (laughs) okay okay so again which one is the lie we have a bananas grow on trees b a severed flatworm which is a type of worm, <laughs> regenerates into two or more worms when after it's been severed. And mm-hmm. uh, blacks, bats see in black and white. Interesting. Oh, fuck. Okay. I think uh, I have these are all biology and I don't know. Yep, I'm they a are. I'm green biologist, baby. You've got to give me more ocean-based <laughs> sorry. questions. Sorry, next time there'll be these more sea land questions. mammals. Yeah. So, okay, sorry. <laughs> the, if you're going to start including uh, sea questions, you're going to start including particle physics as well. <laughs> Because people always expect me to know shit about planets and stars, and I don't know fuck all of Look, there's no fun facts about particle physics. Uh, I disagree. There are a great deal of fun okay, facts. Okay, okay, let's focus, okay, people. Okay. Focus. Okay. Do you have your answers? Okay. okay. I think so. Three, two, one. C. A. No. And... Taryn has it right. Oh shit! Yes. So the bananas oh, don't go on trees. Oh, I didn't they want to don't. Go over it's three. a herb. It's a herb. Okay, it's see, herb. this is the kind of fuckery I was trying to avoid in the last question about like what does and doesn't qualify as a tree. It's like, come on. Obviously, yeah. they grow on a fucking tree. <laughs> if, a, if a rosemary bush is a tree, a banana shrub is also a tree. But I guess. Well, this is why I was googling it. I wanted to be clear why they're not trees. It's because okay. it's not like. It doesn't have the woody. It doesn't thing. have woody material. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. okay, okay. Shit. So a two to one. A two I will one take that. I will take that. <laughs> that was so fun, though. Those were such good questions. I oh, learned I'm so glad. much. I'm glad. That was a great time. Um, congratulations, yeah, thank you Ben. For thank you. As the winner yes. of this round of yeah. science. What is it? Fiction versus science. Fiction. science yeah. Fiction. So if, if anyone has like listened to the few live apps we've put up or been to any of our live shows, this may be the first time one of the hosts has won this game. <laughs> We always the lose to the audience time. or the guests. Yeah. Yeah, well, the only time, way so that one yeah. of us couldn't have won is if we both got every question wrong. Over three, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a distinct yeah. possibility. But you're the only is. people participating here, so yeah. the hosts got it. <laughs> yeah, I think if we both got over three, Nula wins. That should be the yeah. new rule. Yeah, yes. I think that is so the rule. Okay, next time I'll come back with a vengeance. Okay, cool. <laughs> Sounds great. I can't wait. Uh, fuck. Well, that was really fun. Anything else anyone would yeah. like to add? Uh, what did you learn? What did you learn, Taryn? Ah, uh, God. I mean, that I don't know anything about the planets. God damn. <laughs> brush up <laughs> <Yeah>. on that. <laughs> what did you learn? I, uh, I learned I learned awful things about bats. And also that, like, trees. Bats I feel like, you know, rats. trees are, like, one of those... 
that rats. I feel like that trees are like one of those things, like um, when everyone likes to tell you that a tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable, or like, oh, a, yeah. what, what is a legume versus <laughs> yeah. a nut? I mean, like, what I mean, is that's the banana thing. It yeah. was, it was a little bit of a dick question. But like, what is and isn't a tree is just like one of those things that I swear was made up, like just so people could ask snarky <laughs> trick questions about it. Like, you know, when someone's like, eh, "Cashew's not actually a nut; it's a legume." It's like, who gives a fuck? We all know it's a nut. Anyway. <laughs> Wow, it's that's so that plant rant. biologists yeah. have something to talk about. They need to have yeah, something, something to do. right? Just reclassify different shit as trees or not. Okay, well, thank you. Hope you learned something. Thank you, Nula. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for thank having you, me. We'll see you Lovely next time. Lovely to be back. See ya. Um, yeah, the ants are fucked up. Like that, yeah, yeah that, that, but like both of, both of them making the legs longer and shorter. Yeah. Also, they're both how, fucked up. How absolutely wild is it? I feel like people hear stuff about like the animal scent trails and they don't really consider like just how wild it is that like, and how hard and like how unlikely and like that it is that like a salmon mm-hmm. evolved a brain to contain mm-hmm. the like receptors required to identify specific <laughs> chemicals and like understand those specific right? chemicals indicate something and like retain that information forever. Like how does mm-hmm. that happen accidentally? How many mutations does it take? Yeah. Like are the brains like is there something just like about a, a brain structure that like every mammal has that like the brain itself is like some kind of like, general purpose computer that just like finds itself mm-hmm. and makes itself fit to task or are they like all so highly specific and specialized no some of these things you're reading and especially as we get into the next session like i'm just like what the actual what the actual fuck the next section is the one that really blows my mind and it's it's so cool but like also we don't understand any of it like we're just like i don't know they do it isn't it cool (laughs) yeah that that's true like everything you're saying is completely true I'm trying to get at something that I'm probably not articulating well, which is slightly mm. different, which is just that, like, I- I'm I'm willing to accept that, like, animals can do weird, cool shit. I mean, humans can do all kinds of cool, fucked up shit. But, like, I think, like, the, the-, the-, the chemical reactions that are involved, because, like, you know, the brain's just fucking chemistry. It's just chemicals and mm. electrons flying around in there and shit. Like... The, the fact that, like, a salmon can evolve a nose receptor that, like, right. a certain chemical passes over the nose receptor and the nose receptor, which is also contains some kind of chemicals that interact with the other chemicals in a way that sends an electrical impulse that the salmon brain goes like, okay, cool, <laughs> this is the smell that points at home. And, like, yeah. every part of that process is so fucking convoluted. Like, and, and the, the idea that that all just happens randomly over, like, billions yeah. of years of just mu- mutation and just random shit... That is just fucking goddamn evolutionary biology. Like, how does it? Ooh, it's nuts. Like, because we we, we we only ever see the like big scale changes of it, right? Like, we'll be like, oh, yeah. this bird evolved this shaped beak, and that makes that you know is a good argument for the for the evolution. Mm. It's the specialization of the finches. But like the number of random mm. mutations that have to happen, like in, in sequential order, for the bird beak to change shape, like and then yeah. to become so pronounced. Like and that, heritable, yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah. Oh, what the fuck? Like, okay, we're not going to include any of that, but Jesus Christ. No, it's um, so interesting. Yeah, I took a class in freshman year of college on evolutionary biology, like, theory, and it, like, fucked me up in ways that I didn't anticipate. <laughs> like, yeah, just right. learning about when you're simulating things and just seeing how hard it is when they'll say, like, I want you to evolve this trait with this program and just seeing like how many times you have to fuck up before you get there is wild god damn but i guess like the reason that it feels so unfathomable is because 
like we're thinking over a single generation like cause we're only yeah. fucking like you know we don't live much more than 100 years and also we, we have a hard time kind of thinking about numbers bigger than a couple hundred and so it's like it's sort of yeah. hard to, to to picture like the time scales and the number of like you know there's, there's a lot of bugs out there so they had a lot of a lot of tries <laughs> a lot of tries yeah. at evolving the right bug dna yeah. My god, maybe we'll use some of this. If we do use any of it, I just want to clarify, I'm definitely not a creationist. But also, if you are, that's cool. I think the evolutionary <laughs> biology is fucking fascinating and incredible. And I think the it's fact nuts. that it's so unlikely, the fact that it's so unlikely and so difficult, and the, the fact that it happens by random chance, I find all the more beautiful. But, um, oh, you know, that's, that's more of a philosophical uh, point and not one that we would typically address on this show. But, you know, I'll, I'll, if you believe something different, that's great. Uh, let's, let's move on. <laughs> I'll bring us back. All right. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I love the game in the middle of an <laughs> that, episode. That fun quiz we haven't recorded yet sure was fun, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to lift the curtain, Ben. It's all magic. Everything happens at the same that, time. <laughs> that fun thing we're recording tomorrow sure will have been great, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, God damn it. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure it will be. I'm sure we will have had fun at this point. Yeah. All right, so to return us to our theme today of animal navigation, we were talking about senses that we have as humans, and now we're getting into the weird shit. It's the senses that we don't have and can't really comprehend, but we know that other animals have them. So this, and actually, I'm going to need your help in this half, because it turns out a lot of them involve physics, and your girl is a biologist, so she tried her best, but we'll see how we go. I resent the implication that I haven't been helping so far, but let's proceed. (laughs) Well, I just didn't need your help. Now, oh, okay, I see. I see how it is. Okay, proceed. <laughs> All right. So, one that's pretty cool to think about is, you know, we can see sunlight. We understand where the sun is uh, at different points in the day. You know, it rises and then it sets and it moves across <laughs> the sky. But it turns out, though, that what we're seeing when we're watching um, the sun in the sky or sunrise or sunset is actually pretty limited in terms of what's actually going on with the light that's coming down from the sun. So it turns out that the light that comes down from the sky actually has a complex pattern of polarization, and it's dependent on the sun. So we can't see it, but some animals like honeybees can actually sense this polarization and use it to orient themselves. So is there anything a physics person would like to add about a polarization of light at this point? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say, like, light travels around in, like, waves that are kind of like waves on a beach. They're like waves of energy. Mm-hmm. And if you like to think, like, the the sort of the direction of the wiggles, because, like, a, a wave at a beach, like, obviously, like, the bit that goes up and then down, like, the direction of that is obviously just, like, set by the horizon of the water. But if you're, like, mm-hmm. a, a beam of light traveling through free space, the wiggles, the bits of it that are wavy, can kind of go in any direction. Does that make sense? And, yes. like, that's that's what you'd call polarization. It's sort of, like, the, the direction that the, the light is sort of wiggling in. Yes. And, yeah, like, exactly. our, our eyes don't really give a shit about, light uh, the <laughs> polarization when it arrives at them, right? Yes. But it turns out honeybees are actually really good at detecting this polarized light. So it turns out that while normally they might rely on the sun in order to find their way, you know, out of the hive, go find some fun pollen and nectar and shit and bring it back, as we talked about in our very first episode, um, they actually love it, love a callback. If it's a cloudy or overcast day, they can still navigate because it turns out they're using the patterns of polarized light in order to navigate to and from their hive. And Wait, the way that scientists... Hang on. 
Yeah, yeah, right? So, so wait, 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 what the fuck? So what are they <laughs> detecting? Are they, they're not just detecting the light, they're detecting its polarization as they, yeah. and they and so even if they can't see the sun itself, mm-hmm. they can tell by the polarization of the light where the sun is yes. behind the clouds? Yeah. Okay, wow. So like as so is the idea that like as the sun moves throughout the day, the polarization of the light that is coming in because of like interaction with the atmosphere changes mm-hmm. in a repeatable and predictable way. And exactly. so that the bees are able to be like, Oh, this light's thirty percent horizontal and seventy percent vertically polarized, so therefore the sun's right there. Well, I mean, I don't know how precise they are, but they can certainly yeah, yeah, but you know, again, it's the, the length of their trip, right? How long are they gone? Is the sun gonna change that much from when they leave? But yes, yeah. they generally have an understanding of, of how that polarization works and how that relates to them getting back to the nest. Oh, that's very how interesting. Cool. So like the fraction of the polarization even that will help them like infer the location of the sun. That's very cool. Mm. That's yeah, great. So, Why can't we do that? Jesus. Okay, I know, well. I wish. But in the way that they <laughs> like, figured this out, what does that look was... like, right? Because, like, I mean, it's so interesting. Yeah. You said before that, like, we can't, like, we we can't comprehend it. But, like, yeah, because we have a picture of, like, okay, so if you don't know this, when you see anything, when you see anything with your eyes, what's happening is light is coming from some light source, either a light bulb or the sun, bouncing off that thing and going into your eye, and your eye interprets the light as like colors and shapes and all the kind of shit you can see. Mm. But your like our our eyes don't bother interpreting polarization, but like a bee's yeah. eye apparently does interpret the polarization information that also comes with the light. And I guess, like, how does that appear to them? Does it appear as, like, a different... It's like a new axis of color. Like, if we imagine, yeah. like, the way like we, we can't even experience... Like a, it. Yeah, it's like a new dimension. Like, they're trying to picture, like, a fourth spatial dimension. It's like, if you imagine, like, you look at, like, a square of, like, red or something, right? And you might be able to, like... The, the two things your eye would be able to discern about it would be, like the color of red that it is and like you could probably if you made it like a few percent different i don't know exactly how much but like there'd be a a percentage where you were able to be like oh that's actually a slightly different color of red and the other thing your eye would interpret would be like how bright like a you know how how bright or dim the 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 light coming off it is Mm. but like if you were a bee you would be able to be like okay that's a color of red it's so bright and also it's polarized in this way and that like yeah that's yeah it's like an extra axis like an extra column on this spreadsheet Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's wow. like 3D color. Yeah, wow. That's pretty fucking neat. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. I like to think How of it as like a rainbow out? road, you know, Mario Kart rainbow road situation where you just look around and instead of the sky being blue, it's just like a rainbow. And you're <gasps> just like, oh, yes, I have to go to purple today. Got it. <laughs> So how, how did they figure that out about the bees and the being able to detect polarization? Yeah, so they actually did a really cool experiment that was done here in Australia at the University of Queensland. And hey. the researchers put the bees, love it, love an Aussie shout out. Um, they put the bees into a maze. Researchers really like mazes for navigation research. And they put them into a maze and trained them to find a sugar reward that was at the end of, let's say, corridor A. And there might be corridors A, B, and C that they had to be able to find their way. And they had different polarization of light down those different corridors, A, B, and C. And so they trained them to, you know, go down corridor A, and that had a certain polarization of light. Then they shifted the polarization. So now corridor B has the polarization that used to have the reward. And they moved the sugar so that it comes with the polarization of the light. And they found that most of the bees left their trained route and instead followed the polarized light rather than, you know, going back to the original route that they had learned. So it wasn't about, you know, I have to turn left here. It was, I know that the polarized light goes that way. And so I'm going to follow that instead. 
And that is a navigation a human could not have done. Because again, like the polarization no. of light <laughs> is not a property we detect with our eyes. We detect the color and the intensity. That's it. And there's so much more information in the light that our eyes are just fucking too bullshit to see. But um, apparently bees. <laughs> that's really that's really cool. Yeah, it's like they're looking it's so at the cool. secret the secret information about the light that we can't see and using it to know more about the light than we do. Yeah, it, it blows my mind. But if, if your mind has been blown by this one, oh, part the second part of this, it's my favorite thing that we're talking about today. Oh my god, I love okay. it so much. Okay, so <laughs> we know that the sun um, affects the polarization of the light that's coming down to us here on Earth. It also follows that the sky would also have polarization patterns at night, but the light would be coming from the moon. So it's a lot weaker than the polarization that you might see from the sun during the day. It's like a million times weaker. So not as many animals are known to be able to use this, you know, sensing of polarized light at night, certainly not bees. But there is an example of one, and I found it like so strangely poetic, and I just love it. Okay, so, you know, the dung beetle... (laughs) Yes, you know that I love animal? those guys. Yeah, they're big fun guys. <laughs> they love dung. They roll it up into balls they and they just hang out. Yes, that's exactly it. So they literally eat shit and they, how they do that is they find a poo pile and then they get a little small chunk of it and they roll it up into a ball, as you said, and then they have to push it away into a, on, in a straight line to, to eat it later. Because as it turns out... Um, you know, there's apparently a lot of competition to get the good shit, and so they have to get their shit and roll it away really quickly to I prevent it from getting stolen from other young beetles. And they just, like, immediately, it's just open season. Everyone's just, like, cutting yes. off their own little bit and just, like, rolling it away, like, this bit's for me. Yeah, and so it's if you want to make sure that yours doesn't get stolen, you have to make sure that you are moving in a straight line away from the poo pile. You don't want to be making any detours, doubling back on yourself, because then somebody else might steal yours. So you have to be good at going in a straight line. And they're pretty good at this. So this behavior has been observed during the day, um, but researchers also saw them doing this behavior in the night, and they wanted to figure out what was going on. So in a similar way to the bee study, they manipulated the polarized moonlight um, with a filter. And what they found is that this would change the direction that a dung beetle was moving in. So let's say they had their, you know, little ball of poo and they were going, you know, straight north. If they put a filter over the moonlight that changed the direction of the polarization of that light by 90 degrees, then they'd make a hard left turn and start heading west. And so it was the polarization of the light that they were using to guide them. Uh, Wait, what was it? Was it direct correlation like that? Like the direction of the polarization yeah. made them, whoa. So you could like steal yeah. one of these dudes around. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. It's, and this is the first time that it was found that animals could use the polarization of light from the moon to navigate rather than from the sun. And you could just like and, drive then, one of these guys around by steering the polarization. <laughs> I mean, everyone has hobbies, Ben. This could be yours. <laughs> steering dung beetles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got some optical. You could do it polarization filters in the lab i could pull one of them out (laughs) see exactly physicist he can do it that's right so i love this and but it it somehow gets better and this is what really gets me there was a later study that they did like once they figured out that this was a thing that dung beetles were doing they wanted to do more research and um this later study found that um 
you know, they were doing this in the moonlight, but they also found that on moonless nights, the Beatles were still actually able to navigate in a straight line. And they were like, what's going on? You know, there's no moon. How are they doing this? And so they figured out that actually on moonless nights, the Beatles were using the light from the Milky Way yeah, to navigate. distant stars. And push their little poo balls in a straight line. And this is the first time ever that an animal was shown to actually use not specific stars, but a galaxy in order to navigate. And I don't know, I just really like the idea of this gorgeous, cosmic, beautiful Milky Way, this like stunning, you know, very remote thing being used as a navigational tool by like the dung beetle. I don't know. I just think there's some poetry there to it. Yeah. Am I way I off mean, base? Are you as excited by this as I am? Well, like, I mean, it's very it's very cool that they can do that. And I'm kind of like, like, whatever evolutionary pressure there was for the dung beetle to evolve these, like, light detectors, it kind of seems like, like, I don't know, they just, like, juiced up the sensitivity for, like, re- like just bizarre reasons. Because, like, other animals can't do that, yeah. right? Like, other animals, if there's no, they don't, they're not able to use the background of distant stars, like, they, it has to be the sun or the moon. For whatever reason, the dung beetle's light detectors are just <laughs> fucking jacked to shit, and they can use, like, really, like, comparatively dim light sources, and it just seems, like, so surplus to requirement. Like, buddy, your entire life is rolling and eating balls of shit. Put some of that evolutionary energy into something else. But, I mean, <laughs> I guess, like, yeah, cool. The, the thing I do want I to just clarify, though, is, like, the Milky Way is the galaxy we, we are in. It's the, you know, it's, yeah. it's, where, we, it's where we are. It's, it's, you know, it's not... All like, right, when I say remote, I mean that in a biologist sense, not in a astrophysicist sense. Yeah, just it's like, not just like the, the concept furthest of, from us. The concept of using distant stars. Yeah, but it's, it's the first time that... Uh, it was shown, you know, not using, say, the North yeah, not, Star. Not using or like a point a as, like, a navigation, just, like, doing the yes. light polarization thing using, like, the, the cumulative light from, like, a whole yes. bunch of stars. And looking at the polarization exactly. of it rather than, like, looking at, oh, there is that star and there is that star. That means I'm here. Yes, exactly. And I just, I just love it. This, this story yeah. really warms my heart. And I just... Very really sensitive light people. detectors. Good for them. <laughs> Okay, so that that's all about polarization of light. Now, the other foreign and weird navigational technique that I want to talk about is sensing magnetic fields. And again, yeah. we're getting into physics territory, so we're going to see how we go. But it's yeah. really cool. You know, and if you think about it, being able to sense the Earth's magnetic field is an extremely useful thing if you're trying to navigate somewhere because we know the weather can change and then maybe you can't see the sun or the stars and you're not a bee and you can't see the polarized light behind the clouds. Uh, but the magnetic fields, you know, they're always going to be there and they're going to be they're pretty always gonna be there for time. You. <laughs> they're going to be there for you through thick and thin, through rain and shine and sleet so it kind of makes sense that if you were trying to go long distances, that it might, you know, be helpful to be able to sense these magnetic fields. And so, indeed, a variety of animals can have this sort of inbuilt compass that allows them to sense magnetic fields. So you're talking about, like, the Earth's magnetic field here, right? So, like, yes. for, the, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, a magnetic field is a 
sort of force of nature that's a very like physicists who are like really into like um fundamental particle physics will probably be yelling at me for, for using that terminology it's like uh it, it's just like a thing that exists in nature whereby like certain particles that have uh, electrical charge uh can interact with these things called magnetic fields and they can experience like forces as a result of it um one of the ways this manifests is in a bar like a fridge magnet like a thing that you would stick on a fridge that's a magnetic field the particles in the magnet that your thing are interacting with the particles in the body of the fridge and it's sticking to it just using you know magnetism as the force is called you've probably i'm probably over explaining it i think everyone knows the concept (laughs) of magnetism the the earth has a magnetic field as a result of the fact that it has a molten iron core so there's a bunch of like iron kicking around in the core of the earth and it's moving around and that creates this magnetic field that travels out of like the the south pole of the earth and into the north pole of the earth and we our compasses like they, they work because it's a little bit of metal and it's sort of very delicately balanced and it aligns itself along the Earth's magnetic field lines and points at points at uh, points at the North Pole. I guess what you're saying is yeah, like animals, some of them could just do that without needing to build a compass. That's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's lots of different animals that do this. I mean, there's like birds and some turtles and uh, one experiment that I'll talk about is newts. The red spotted newt. So one of the experiments that was done to figure out that, you know, these animals could experience uh, or had a sense rather of um, magnetism, they call it magnetoreception, Mm -hmm. um, is that they had these red spotted newts and normally, um, you know, they're, they're hanging out in the water, they're having a good time. Um, but then if the water heats up really quickly, then they're going to move themselves out of the water because it could indicate some form of danger. The conditions aren't very good. So that's what a normal newt would do when the water gets hot. Regular ass newt temperature receptor. Yeah. But in an experiment where they heated the water, but also manipulated the magnetic field around where the newt was, then the newts were diverted away from the shore and further into the water at exactly the angle you would expect in which the magnetic field was changed, right? So if before they were going straight into shore, and then you rotate it 180 degrees, so it's pointing in the opposite direction, then the newts would go in the opposite direction when the water was heated up, indicating that they were using that magnetic sense to find their way back to shore. Yeah, nice. So the temperature thing was just like a stimulus to make them move. and uh, Yeah, so, the... so it's it's tricky to, as it turns out, to, to test, you know, magnetism and your ability to sense it in like a, a really controlled experimental setting because there's so many factors that could be affecting it. So this is one where they were able to test them sort of in the wild and do less manipulation than like putting them into a tank and saying, you know, you do this or a maze thing. They were trying to trying to get out into the real world and show that these could apply, you know, even out there, which I think is pretty cool. Wait, so that, that, that test was done in the field? How did they heat the water and how did they manipulate the magnetic field like over large? Listen, I didn't read the methods. I'm going to be real with you. I didn't read the methods, but okay. I can vouch for that being a more complex form of an experiment that would normally have been done in like a circular tank or something. Yeah. Which nice. there's plenty of examples of those two. But one example that I wanted to give um, from sort of uh, being observed out in the field, like truly not an experiment. And it's to return to my faves, the sea turtles. I cannot get enough of these guys. They're just so good at everything. So um, apparently when you have female loggerhead sea turtles, uh, you know, we've covered this. They're born at a beach. They go swimming out to the ocean hundreds miles away. Then there's all these currents. There's all this weather. And then 
when she's ready to lay her eggs, like 20 years later, she will go back to the same beach that she was yeah, born at. Very good memory. So we've heard this example before. But something that I learned is that actually sometimes the female turtles don't get it right. They actually might end up at another beach that's 20 miles away from the beach on which they were born. So you might just think, oh, she's just not very good. She's Wait, kind it, of approximating. Is, you know, is she it got always close 20 enough. miles? No, it's just sort of an example. Like, she might be a yeah. little bit off in yeah. her... Some, some yeah, She doesn't make it back to the same beach. But what's okay. cool is, this, this, this isn't her just kind of ballparking it. It turns out that the, the place that she's going to land 20 years later, it actually is the correct location if you um, compare it to the magnetic field of the beach on which she was born. So she actually what? gets the magnetic field location correct. It's that the magnetic field has shifted since 20 years ago, and that's oh. where she would end up. Yeah, see, I was wondering how about this. I think that? I said something similar in the Sea Turtle episode about how, like, the Earth's magnetic field does change over time. Like, uh, I don't yeah. know, like, the we, we talked maybe a bit about this concept of a polar shift. Like, the, the polarity of the Earth's magnetic field is supposed to flip at some point in the not too oh, distant yeah, future. Oh, yeah, we did talk about that. We're, yeah. either, we're either overdue for it, or it's, like, a couple of... Like, but we're talking, like, geological timescales, so, like, hundreds of thousands to millions of years. But, like, it's yeah, happened yeah. in the past, and um, it, it should happen again at some point. And, like, I was just, like, wondering mm. what that would do to these animals. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, that makes sense. Oh, I just think it's so wild that at first people would have been like, ah, oh, she's just... She's just bad at this. And then it turns out, no, she's very good at this. It's just that the magnetic field itself has it. changed. That's right. Too good. Doesn't so take into account think, the drift. Gah. Gah, 20 years. I mean, that's a long time to go away. Things are bound to change. You know, they'll put up a, a McDonald's or something, and they got rid of the old mom and pop shop, and now there's a mall. That kind of thing. You know what else <laughs> is there, Taryn? A brand new what? Toyota dealership where you can pick up a hot end of financial year deal on a fully loaded Toyota Camry. Enter the code uh, Sea Turtles to get fifteen percent off your next 15% purchase. Fifteen percent off a with Toyota. Toyota Camry? That's that's know. a considerable bargain, Taryn. That's many thousands 2%. of dollars. I walk it back two percent. Okay, I mean, I'll take any any deal on a car you can get me. <laughs> I would too, but alas, Toyota hit us up. We would love to have your sponsor. Hey, you don't, you don't want a we'll new stop car? Stop yelling you, at your cars. You don't huh? want a new car. You're still driving the Oofmobile. <laughs> Listen, it gets me from A to B, and that's what's important. Yeah, and for anyone playing at home, I did just reveal part of Taryn's license plate. <laughs> so, Thanks for um, that, Ben. Love that. Love that for me. You can really, really dial in on Taryn's <laughs> personal details if you have some kind of hookup that allows you to, like, detect license plates. <laughs> it's a great car. Anyway, Toyota, let me know. I'll buy a new car when I get home. Okay. Great. Okay, so, where were we? <laughs> Magnetism. Sea <laughs> turtles and then magnetism. <laughs> okay, so we're we're aware of the concept of magnetoreception now. So how does this work? Is it really like an internal compass? Like, is there an organ for this? You know, like we we have scent receptors in our nose, we have taste bugs on our tongue. Like, where is the magneto organ in all of these different animals? So it turns out this has been pretty tricky to figure out, and there's currently two theories going on. So the first one is known as sort of the iron theory, and it was proposed when some scientists realized that there are many birds that have small deposits of iron in their beaks. 
And this is a metal that can be really easily magnetized. Yeah. So they proposed that maybe that's what was going on. And they later found deposits of iron in dolphins and sea turtles, which seemed to further support that theory. But they also found some funky things in further experiments that seem to maybe not fully align with that idea. So, for example, if they uh, exposed birds to red light, then it would make them disoriented. But red light is not known to affect how magnets work. And so they were thinking, you know, okay, what's going on here? How come the, the light is affecting their ability to sense these magnetic fields? Um, and that leads to the second theory, which is a little bit more physics, physics-y. Okay. Physics-ish. Yeah. <laughs> physics. What's physical. the adjective I'm looking for? Let's get physical. physical it's baby. a little more physical, baby. <laughs> so the second theory has to do with the cryptochrome. Now, this is a protein oh, that exists in the sounds like a book eye. that would be full of, like, ancient spells that you might use to summon, uh, like, a, a deity. The cryptocurrency. No, this is your D&D okay. brain. I, don't, I think it sounds yeah. like cryptocurrency, but it's, like, in your eye. Anyway, it's a protein. <laughs> <laughs> it's a okay. protein that exists in the eye of some animals. And the theory goes that... These cryptochromes, these proteins, are struck by a photon of light. And Ben, can you remind us what a photon is? Yeah, so um, remember when I said before that light was made up of waves? That's bullshit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> light, light is actually made of uh, particles that are called photons. These tiny little, like, um, we call them quantized, which really just means, like, uh, broken up into discrete chunks rather than being, like, a continuous thing. Um, like a wave. So light as it... Yeah, so light, as it turns out, uh, is discrete particles called photons. Um, but, you know, the reason we bother with the wave thing is because they're also waves. It's a whole thing. It's a whole quantum mechanics thing. We have an episode about quantum mechanics that we did live at we Fringe do. in 2020, which will be coming out sometime, so, so stay tuned for that. But essentially, like, light has properties that are both what we call wave-like and particle-like. When it's exhibiting particle-like behaviors, it's in the form of what we call photons. Well, okay, it's, it's always photons. These <laughs> photons have both wave-like and particle-like properties. Um, Love but it. On, on large okay, scale, we don't actually you, need okay, to know to, any more about the properties. Just to okay. clarify, on large scales, when you consider many, many photons, like uh, photons are really, really like low energy. An individual photon is, is very small, if you like. Like, the number of photons coming out of your, like, ceiling light bulb is, like, billions of billions of billions of billions a second. And when you consider them on that kind mm. of scale, they look a lot like waves. When you consider them on very small scales, they look a lot like particles. So when you're talking about, like, an individual interaction in your eye with, with light coming in, it's like an individual photon of light is interacting with an individual, like, chemical compound in your eye and creating some kind of effect. And I guess it's the same yes. for birds. Love that. Okay, yes. So, photon. Uh, the cryptochrome, that protein in the eye is struck by a photon of light. Now, that, you know, could be from the sun or stars or something. And when that protein is struck by a photon of light, uh, it affects its electrons. So we're going to get into a little more physics. So, under normal circumstances, electrons are normally paired together. And when they're paired together, or always really, they have this property that's called spin. And when electrons are paired, they will have opposite spins. Is that all accurate, Ben? <laughs> They always have spin, whether they're paired or not. Yes. Um, but yes. when they are in, yeah, like when they're in pairs inside like atoms or molecules, yeah, they're, they're paired so that they have opposite spins due to something called the Pauli exclusion principle. But we won't go into that just mm. now. Yum. Okay. So 
the photon of light comes in, it strikes this protein, and the electrons uh, that were paired, um, one of them gets jolted out of place. So now that they're unpaired, and this is where it gets interesting. So these unpaired electrons, rather than being paired together and one's opposite to the other, um, their spin state is now going to shift depending on the orientation of that molecule to the Earth's magnetic field. Are you talking so about that's fucking, how it's like, Zeeman splitting? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Taryn, this is complicated but, shit. All right, proceed. I know. It, I'm very... I, it was a lot. I read a lot about physics this week. I didn't think I was going to have to do that because we were talking about animals. But okay. I learned a lot about electrons. And so, yeah, the theory is basically that there are these two unpaired electrons now, and these unpaired electrons, their spin state is going to change depending on the magnetic field of the Earth around it. So that's how it's hypothesized that these cryptochromes are working and how the animals sort of in their eyes are sensing the orientation of the animal relative to the magnetic field of the Earth. Like, how cool is that? Yeah, that's... I'm trying to think how that works. So, like, the magnetic field of the Earth is going to, yeah, interact with the spins of the electrons and change, like, it'll change the energy levels within the within the, the molecule. And, like, somehow they can use that, like, the, the <laughs> splitting of the energy levels based on their spin to detect yeah. direction. It's That's nuts. a pretty weird... Yeah, shit. That's, that's really cool. Um, really fucking yeah, complicated. Yeah, so cryptochrome. Um, if you want to read more cryptochromes, and if you know more about it, physics and splitting of electrons than I do. But yeah. it's it's a really fascinating theory, and that's how they think it could be related. And coolest bit of all, I don't know about you, but I've been feeling like a little left out of this discussion. Polarized light, 3D color, magnetoreception, like we can't do any of this shit. But yeah. it turns out that humans actually do have a cryptochrome protein in their eyes, similar to how birds do. And it does have properties that could let it function as a light-sensitive magnetoreceptor. Now, that doesn't mean that we have magnetoreception, but it means that we have a protein in our eye that is functionally so, capable so it's like, of doing that. But but it's like vestigial? Yeah. Like, it's just there and we don't use it? Well, yeah. I mean, it, this is all, like, brand new stuff. We're still trying to figure out, like, how it is that we have that, and, and did we once have that ability, and now we don't have that ability anymore. I mean, it's likely, you know, as we were talking about, like, just having a you know an organ that can sense something doesn't mean that you have the ability to, to sense that thing, right? So like There's all kinds of chemical reactions and biological reactions that have to happen between you sensing that thing and then, or, you know, that organ sensing that thing and then you being able to perceive that. There's a whole chain of things that has to happen in between. And so while we might have that protein, we don't have all the other biological reactions anymore that can help us to sense the magnetic yeah. fields. But, but like, like it's a pretty cool idea, isn't it? And we've like evolved out of having them. And like yeah, it's that's nuts. crazy. I'm, I'm I literally just Googled human magnetoreception and I'm now looking at an article from twenty nineteen that claims that like some humans can still do it a little bit. Which um Oh, that would be nuts. <laughs> yeah. I mean that would lend cringe to the idea that like we had that sense built in and we just like lost the need for it and like it just kinda like has yeah. stagnated as like an evolutionary driver and now it's really rare. That's fucking really cool. Man, I'm going to have yeah. to dig in on cryptochromes and magnetoreception. So it's like there are these like special molecules that are like by... Oh, man. All right. Fuck yeah. This is interesting shit. I'm going right? to I'm gonna have to do yes! some further reading. I love this. I got the physicist, guys. He's into it. We love it. <laughs> and I guess, 
you know, something that's obviously on a very different um, time scale, but just thinking about, you know, use it or lose it in terms of skills, like, I have grown up using a GPS to get me everywhere. So my sense of direction and knowing how to get places is pretty underdeveloped because I don't need to know how to do that anymore. And so maybe it's the case that we just stopped needing magnetoreception because our society's built up and we didn't really need to travel long distances because we were settling down. This is all me theorizing, but like maybe that's how that happened. I don't know. It's all cool to think about. That is all cool to think about, Taryn. Thank you so much for teaching me about animal navigation, even if I didn't get to use any of my notebook full of pirate jokes. Well, I mean, you know, you can you can save them. I'm still interested to learn about human navigation, uh, but not today. But I also did promise at the top of the show that we would talk about humans at the end, and this is that time. It's, okay, great. It's a new segment that I think I've realized that I do at the end of every episode, so we're just going to call it Humans Ruin Everything. Welcome cool. to Humans Ruin Everything. We should get a little it's usually about climate change. I know. I I kind of want to like. I'm not good at coming up with music on the fly. We did have like, we did you know have those guys who are offering to make us like weekly bespoke jingles about the topic of the oh episode. Oh my god! So we I probably... want a Humans Ruin Everything jingle. Let's go. Yeah, that, I mean, Cal, if you're listening, get get on it. We'll, we'll play a Humans Ruin Everything jingle like absolutely. All right. Oh my proceed. god, I would love that. Humans Ruin Everything. So we've already covered um, in a previous episode one of the ways that humans can um, mess up navigation, and that's with our lights. So, you know, they're bad on the beach for sea turtles. Et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. So we know, and that could also be a problem for our faves, the dung beetles, at night, you know, if we have lights that are interfering with their abilities. So human lights, not the best. Another example in which we might interfere with navigation of animals is through pollution. So, for example, there are some commonly used pesticides that can interfere with honeybee navigation. Mm. And at first, they weren't sure how this worked, um, but I actually found a pretty recent study that found that essentially how it works is that uh, when they're exposed to these pesticides, it deprives them of sleep. And so it messes with their internal sense of time, their like circadian rhythm. And therefore, it interferes with their ability to navigate because they're relying on the sun and the polarization of the light like we talked about in order to navigate. And so they just kind of get lost and then they can't make their way back to their hive and they eventually die. So that's why the pesticides are bad for them. Yeah, and I wow. like to think of it as sort of like a bee hangover, right? It's like when you wake up and you're like, no, no, it's not 10 a.m. That's impossible. It feels and, like four in the morning. And you're like, dude, <laughs> where's my car? And Dude, where's my car? Yeah, And then you can't find it and then you never find your way back home. And that's then you die. That's the, the equivalent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the equivalent. Okay, wow. Uh, that's horrible. And fuck humans. So good job, us. Love it. And the last one, it's our good friend, Climate Change. He always comes back. He comes back bum, to us bum, every bum, episode. Bum. I feel like Climate Change <laughs> also needs its own special jingle. For when we're like, humans are everything. And then a sub, a subsection jingle <laughs> called, like, especially Climate Change. <laughs> I mean, or, like, if, if we were to do a drinking game of, like, listening to the app, it would be, like, take a shot when they talk about climate change. Because yeah. you know it's happening in yeah. every episode it's about true. animals. I think every single one so far. Yeah. So, climate change is bad. So, not only is it destroying key habitats that migrating animals need um, through things like uh, more intense storms, there's sea level rise, all kinds of things are messing with their habitats. Um, but it's also affecting the timing of key events for these navigating animals. So 
let's say that you have a migrating species, maybe they're birds, and they know that it's time to navigate, it's time to migrate, because the days are getting shorter. And so they're relying on a light-based cue to say, <laughs> okay, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the seasons, they're staying the same, but the temperatures of those seasons are changing. So maybe uh, at their destination, you know, it's gotten warm way too early. So by the time they get there, you know, their food supply might have already been eaten by other competitors, or maybe it's already, you know, past its ripe stage and there's not as much of it. So by the time they arrive, they're all depleted from their travels, and they might not survive that season because they don't have enough food when they get there. So So that's another way that climate change can affect them. And it's not that we're fucking with their timing mechanism, it's that their time Mm. to be there is no longer the right time because we fucked it all up. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) that's a fun new way. It's a fun new way. Coming and going. If you're a bee, you will fuck with your timing (laughs) mechanism. If you're a bird, we'll leave your timing mechanism alone and just make sure it's all fucked up by the time you get there. Yes. (laughs) Either way, you know, we'll fuck you both ways. But I didn't want to end today on a negative note because I feel like it's always so sad when we end on climate change. So I do want to touch on the fact that we do know that animals can adapt to change and they're really good at it. I mean, if you think about all the like gross city animals <laughs> that you see these days. Cool right? so city rats. Like, <laughs> love a cool city rat running away with some pizza on the New York City subway. One of those guys. In Australia, we have the bin chickens. Yeah, I was going to say the ibises. You used to be from Brisbane. You know all about that. Oh, yeah. Like, they're everywhere, and they just eat garbage, and they're having a great time. They love garbage. They love it. They love it. They're, like, obsessed with eating trash. It's fantastic. (laughs) So, like, some of these issues, like, animals can adapt somewhat, but, like, not every animal is a bin chicken. There's a reason there aren't bin, like, bears or bin anything else. (laughs) Because it's really just the bin chickens, the ibises, that like the trash. So, like, we do need to make sure that for animals that rely on really specific habitats, really specific food sources, that we're protecting those wild spaces they inhabit. Um, And that really speaks to the importance of doing more navigational-type research. So, if we understand where animals are and their patterns of movement, let's say we have sea turtles, my ultimate fave, and we want to protect them. Let's say we've created a go-slow zone near the shoreline, and so boaters have to, like, slow down their vehicles so they don't hit any sea turtles, because that's really sad. Great idea. We love it. But if we put trackers on the turtles, and then we find out they're only spending 10% of their time in our go-slow zone, and they're spending 80% of their time over here near this reef then we can learn from that and create a go-slow zone where they're spending their time, and so we're protecting them more effectively. So there are ways that we can use this knowledge to our benefit to make sure that we're protecting them as best we can. Nice. So, in summary, humans ruin things, but we can also fix things sometimes. Yeah, and we deserve awards for fixing the shit we fucked up. (laughs) Congratulations, humans. We did it great. Good job. Participation award to you. Yeah. Good job, humans. 
Well, I feel great about us, Taryn. And if you feel great about yourself after listening to that episode of The Uncertainty Principle, uh, well, that wasn't very smooth. How about we start with this? Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Uncertainty Principle. Uh, we sure hope you've learned something along the way, and maybe you feel alternately worse and better about uh, humans' impact on the animals, <laughs> and also just maybe you've learned something really cool about the way that animals navigate around. If you have learned something cool about the way that animals navigate around, why don't you navigate your way over to one of our various social social media platforms or to you know just you can you can check us out uh at principalcast on twitter or you can check out uh our podcast network curio network on facebook instagram or twitter or me specifically at dr bt McAllister on twitter and i'm at science taren on twitter yes yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us and like suggest a topic to us or give us some feedback or something you can go ahead and do that there and we'd really appreciate it as would every podcast you've ever listened to if you would leave us a rating or a review on wherever you happen to be listening or just you know t- tell a friend about it. Teach them. Use your cool evolved monkey brain capable of learning advanced navigation patterns and repeating them to teach your fellow monkeys how to navigate their way to our podcast and hit that subscribe. I love it. Please do all of those things. Uh, well, thank you, Taryn. I've had a great time. Thank you to I Mula did too. For, that was fun. For, for the fun game that we are going to have had fun doing <laughs> by the time the <laughs> listeners hear this. <laughs> And uh, we'll be back at you in about a month with an episode that'll be hosted by yours truly, Monsieur Benjamin. I can't wait. Yeah, I bet you can't. It's going to be great. I'm going to teach you all about a topic I haven't started researching yet, but you know I'm going to wake up tomorrow and spend the next month tirelessly for for, for, (laughs) 16 hours a day researching whatever the next topic is. So I haven't got long to figure it out. Well, I hope you've enjoyed, you know, society at large because you don't get to see them for the next month as you're preparing. So bon voyage. That's that's right. Bon voyage. Hey, that's a navigation joke. Taryn, you did it. Yes! Have a good good voyage! Goodness me. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for listening. As always, thank you. The way we end this show is I say, (laughs) stay uncertain. Stay uncertain. Hey! Yeah! We did it!